0: Grammar Girl here. This week, I have a quick and dirty tip about the words canceled with one L and canceled with two Ls, a tidbit about syllable acronyms, such as a new abbreviation for the word homecoming, a meaty middle about a new book based on research that's supposed to have clues about how to write a best-selling novel, and some featured listeners. And now, on to canceled. Every winter, you probably see the word canceled a lot, but should it be spelled with one L or two? The one L version is more common in American English. The AP Stylebook, used by many American news outlets, for example, recommends it. And the two L version is more common in British English. But these aren't hard-and-fast rules. When I do a Google Ngram search, I can see that both spellings are used in both British and American English. This quick and dirty tip is about spelling trends, not absolute right and wrong. Noah Webster is usually credited with creating American spellings that have fewer letters than British spellings, such as color and flavor without the U, and canceled with one L was the recommended spelling in a Webster's 1898 dictionary but the Google Books Ngram results actually show that the 1L version only overtook the 2L version in American books in the early 1980s. In summary, your quick and dirty tip is if you're writing for an American audience, spell cancelled with 1L, and if you're writing for a British audience, spell cancelled with 2Ls. If it bothers you that there are two spellings, blame Noah Webster. Next, we're going to talk about syllable acronyms. Fall is finally here, and here in the United States, September or October are when many of the nation's high schools and colleges have their homecoming tradition. For those of you who don't live in the United States or Canada, homecoming is a week during which a school's former students come back for a visit, and it usually features a football game, a dance, and various other school-spirit-related activities. In the last few years, the word homecoming has joined the ranks of words that have given rise to an unusual type of acronym which is formed by taking not just the first letter of each word in a name, but its initial consonant and first vowel. I'll call them syllable acronyms. For homecoming, if you haven't already guessed, it's HOCO! You can go to YouTube right now, search for HOCO, and find dozens of videos showing the increasingly ridiculous ways that teenagers will ask someone to be their date for the homecoming dance. According to a 2005 post on Language Log by Ben Zimmer, syllable acronyms started cropping up at the beginning of the 20th century. In other words, they've been around as long as the majority of our more typical initial-letter acronyms. According to Zimmer, the first syllable acronym was none other than the company name Nabisco, shortened from National Biscuit Company. So many other acronyms followed that used the syllable CO to stand for company, such as Texaco and Sunoco, that to this day the most popular pattern for syllable acronyms is a rhyme involving the long O, such as SOHO, a New York neighborhood that's south of Houston Street, Hojo, a hotel chain Howard Johnson, or, when I was growing up, the musician Howard Jones who sang Things Can Only Get Better and Don't Try to Live Your Life in One Day, Flojo, the American Olympic track and field star Florence Griffith Joyner, and now HoCo. Incidentally, I've learned that HoCo can also refer to Howard County, a county in Maryland between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., There were a lot of Howard County hoko tweets on Twitter, but if you go back far enough, you can see that the first tweet using hoko to refer to homecoming was posted in December of 2011. If you're a high schooler, college student, or graduate returning to your alma mater, I hope you have a fabulous hoko this year. And if you're a writer of fiction, I wish you a fun and productive November. You know, National Novel Writing Month better known by its syllable acronym of NanoRimo. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, an independent researcher and writer on language and grammar. He blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com and tweets at LiteralMinded. Next, I have some tips from Jody Archer and Matthew Jockers, the authors of The Best Seller Code, on how to style your words like a best-selling author. In the bestseller code, Archer and Jockers, who have backgrounds in publishing and text mining, worked together to create an algorithm that aims to identify novels that'll become bestsellers. Each chapter of the book cracks open a bit more of the code, from character to topics and the emotional rhythms that work in fiction. Today, we're going to look at some aspects of style that could improve your chances of hitting the bestseller lists. First, go easy on adjectives and adverbs. Decorate your nouns and verbs sparingly and with caution. In other words, no Christmas tree sentences. Stick with the simple pine tree in its natural state. Readers do not want Clive observed that the elegant and beautiful Josie Matthews was sitting in her brown wingback armchair typing carefully while humming prettily to herself. Instead, Try, Josie sat typing, humming an old tune. Her beauty was not lost on Clive. Next, readers hate an exclamation point if it really isn't necessary. Exclamation points kill nuance in tone and can turn a tense action scenes into melodrama. Not everything needs to go bump. And for the irritating trend for double or triple exclamation points, please never ever do it. The triple exclamation turns up way too often in self-published manuscripts. Remember, this is fiction, not a text to your BFF. Save the exclamation point for the rare moment you want to show volume or surprise or that something borderline in tone is indeed intended to be funny and not critical. Sometimes an exclamation point can turn a potentially cold and sarcastic remark into a more friendly and smiling comment. Also, make sure your sentences are active, not passive. Why? Because active sentences make active characters. Feel your response to the difference between these two characters called John. The first John is passive, in attitude and language. John was sitting at the bar. He was given a drink by the bartender, and he was approached by a lady in a red dress. The thought struck him that he might have a chance to date her, but he waited to see. Is John the sexy hero of a best selling romance novel? Not likely. Who wants to burn their way through three hundred pages about a passive guy who passively lets life happen? Passivity makes for a low energy scene. Then there's the other John going to a bar across the road. He does his verbs rather than having them done to him. Listen to this. John pulled open the door of All Bar One, made his way through the crowd, and called to the bartender to pour him a double scotch. The lady on the bar stool next to him was stunning. That's an amazing red dress, he said. Can I buy you a drink? Readers respond to characters who are in control and to authors who are in control of the active versus the passive voice. This one might surprise you, but the ellipsis used well is your friend. Let your reader do some of the work, and let the ellipsis create your tone. He was wearing that tuxedo and a six o'clock shadow. Holy moly, dot, dot, dot. Here, your reader's going to smile along with the narrator. Don't we know, just from the pause for breath in the ellipsis, that this man is very attractive to the narrator? Don't we smile along with her and enjoy sharing her informal reaction? Holy moly. It creates an intimacy between the reader and the narrator to write in this way, and the he—perhaps John from the bar—is unaware of the effect he's had. Compare it to this. He was wearing that tuxedo in a six-o'clock shadow. She was very attracted to this look. While the two versions communicate almost the same basic information to the reader, the first has given them some more style and tone and has likely given the reader a smile. This is the right way to use an ellipsis, but keep it sparing. It needn't happen every page or even every ten pages, but when it does, do it for tone and not to avoid finding the words to tell the reader something important. In fiction, you should also drop the formality. Best-selling writers often have journalism in their backgrounds. They know punchy prose and colloquial language. Contractions are just fine for creating a best-selling voice. Can't and isn't sound more natural than cannot and is not. And informal expressions like okay and even ugh are more common in best-selling books than in books that don't sell well. Fiction is one place where you definitely want your writing to reflect how people really speak instead of how they should speak, or even would speak if they were being proper. Finally, make your opening sentence sing. It has to work hard in simple language. Here are a few examples from the book. Notice they all create an emotional response or a hook, but none needs elaborate language or a long, complex sentence. All these opening lines come from novels that hit the New York Times bestseller list. The secret is how to die. That's from Dan Brown's book, The Lost Symbol. Who wouldn't be skeptical when a man claimed to have spent an entire weekend with God, no less? That's from William Young's book, The Shack. They shoot the white girl first. That's from Toni Morrison's book, Paradise. If you found these tips from the bestseller Code Helpful, you can get the book and read more about the secrets of successful style in the chapter called The Debutantes" or Why Every Comma Matters. And for a limited time, you can also enter for a chance to have your manuscript critiqued by Jody and Matthew. The link to enter is at the bottom of the transcript for this podcast at quickanddirtytips.com. Just go to the site and search for Hit the Bestseller List. Finally, I want to thank more listeners this week who told me where they listen to the podcast. Nadia listens while she's training for a marathon. You go. Good luck. Jen listens while hiking on trails in my own hometown, Reno, Nevada. We have great hiking here. It's one of our many secrets. Cheyenne is listening from the beginning from what she calls her dusty keyboard at work. When I moved into my office at work, the keyboard was filthy, and it took me an embarrassingly long time to clean it, so trust me, I don't judge. Your keyboard looked just fine to me. Sarah listens while walking along what looks like a lovely rural road. Ernest listens with his son while they're on their way to school, Brent listens while in a control room preparing equipment for a broadcast, and Kelly listens all the way from the Gold Coast in Australia while running around a lake at sunrise. Good morning, Kelly. If you want to show me where you listen, you can use the hashtag #WhereIListen I Listen on Instagram or Twitter, and be sure to tag me too so I see it and know it's for me. I'm Grammar Girl on Twitter and The Grammar Girl on Instagram, and you can also post it to the Grammar Girl Facebook page. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find all my articles, podcasts, and books at QuickAndDirtyTips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say,